All right. Thank you, Sybil. Do you want to know a secret? I'm not a big fan of ice cream. <laughs> I don't mind it, but I'm not a huge... And I don't like vanilla. I used to live in New Zealand. I wonder if anybody saw this thing. Anybody remember that? Or oh, new? No. On Beach Des, bro. Beach Des. It was quite painful. Sorry, guy. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting, when we lived in New Zealand, you'd, you'd hit things about accents that were in, rather interesting. I, here in Australia, we would look at these two pictures and we would hit, see things that sound similar. Stare and chair, right? They sound the same, right? In New Zealand, these two sound identical. Steer and steer. <laughs> but the interesting thing, while well, we might laugh, somebody who spent 10 years over in New Zealand, they laughed at my accent, which is funny, because I don't have an accent, they do. <laughs> What you do when you live in a country where your accent marks you out as a little bit different, what it can be tempting to do is to just suppress that. I to a guy the other day who'd come from South Africa. He told me that. I wouldn't have known if he hadn't. I couldn't pick his accent at all. And he said, well, I've moved from place to place and people kept commenting on my accent and it disappeared those things that mark you out as different, you start to suppress. Because, is it worth the fuss? Is it worth it? I can still remember when I got interviewed at one church, uh, they, they did the interview with me, and then at the end they said, finally, um, could you just count to ten for me? Because in New Zealand, the number between five and seven sounds something like something very different. So I went one, two, three, four, five, half a dozen, seven, eight, nine, ten. And, <laughs> um, but if those distinctives can mark you. Well, the thing is, as Christians, there is something that is distinctive about us. And as Paul writes to the Christians in Thessalonica, he writes to a group for whom those distinctives, being a Christian, marked you. Not for simply uh, jokes about your accent, but marked you for persecution. And the temptation is just to be a bit vanilla, but safe. And Paul was worried that that's what was going to happen in Thessalonica. It's good for us to look at that because we live in a world where it is increasingly unpopular to show the distinctives that we have. The distinctives we have as Christians are becoming not just unpopular, but are seen as a social evil. And the temptation is to be just a bit vanilla, just a bit plain. Not raising any distinctions, not standing out in any way, blending in. 
Well, as we open God's word together and look at this passage in Thessalonians, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that it is living and active, that it reads us even as we read it. We thank you that it points us to the Lord Jesus. And so as we heard at the beginning of our service, we pray again that now as we open your word, we would see Jesus. And in seeing him, we pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to stand with him. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I say, uh, to be a Christian in Thessalonica was to be a member of an opposed faith. In fact, Paul said it's actually normal Christianity to be in an opposed faith. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. Paul ends up in Athens. He went to Thessalonica. We'll have a look at this in a moment. He got kicked out of Thessalonica, so he went to Berea. He got kicked out of Berea, so he went to... And he's anxious about the people who he had met, who he'd encountered, who had responded to the good news of the gospel when he was there in Thessalonica. He wants them to be firm and not unsettled. Because persecution, suffering, hostility is normal for Christians. Think of how Paul's journey through Thessalonica went. He, before coming to Thessalonica, he was in Philippi. And in chapter 2, he tells us when he was in Philippi, he was treated outrageously. And it's quite true. He was arrested without trial, held in a prison. And then they went to release him and kick him out of the city and found out he was a Roman citizen and that he had a right to have a trial and not to be arrested without trial. And they couldn't just let him go without anything and they found themselves in a lot of trouble. It was disgraceful. It was unjust. And it was stirred up because Paul had preached the gospel. And a young girl who had been making money. But as it is in this world, anything that hits someone's back pocket incurs their rage faster than anything else. And so Paul was treated atrociously in Philippi. He then comes to Thessalonica. As he says, we, we did 
to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. And he had that strong opposition. In Acts 17, we read this. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, started a riot in the city, and they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the mob. This is not a good picture, is it? And it doesn't stop in Thessalonica. Paul goes on to Berea. What happens in Berea? When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too and agitated the crowds and stirred them up. Paul knew that to stand up for Jesus was to stand out in a world that despised Jesus. If you don't, simple question. How do you feel about the idea that God sees you as somebody who needs Jesus in order not to be an object of his wrath? And have a look at how they treat you. So Paul says, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and our labours might have been in vain. Somehow had all of this anger and hostility, all of this violence, all the stuff that happened to Jason as he got dragged before the mob all the stuff that had happened since, and we presume that they didn't just drop everything and all go back home and go, oh, that was fun. The ongoing conflict that they had as believers in a city that was stirred up to riot because of the message of Jesus. Well, there's the temptation, isn't it? To be vanilla. The temptation to let go of all that is distinctive. That is all that is special. To let go of the heart of the gospel for some perceived safety in being vanilla. I wonder whether that's something that we wrestle with. Not standing out. Not incurring the kind of names that they love to throw at Christians. Bigot. Big favourite at the moment, isn't it? Beginning of the book of Revelation, there's messages that Jesus gives to seven churches in Asia Minor. And some of them are struggling hard and, and, and Jesus gives messages of encouragement. Some of them are compromised. And Jesus gives messages of warning and encouragement. It's one particular church, though, that has built a reputation in the midst of a place that sees Christianity as the enemy. Somehow, the reputation they've got is we're the happening place. We're fine. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Revelation to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven. Spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your deeds that you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. 
It's chilling words, isn't it? You who've got this reputation that everything's cool, we're fine, we're great. We don't get any hostility, we don't get any opposition. Jesus says, yeah, that's because you're dead. Why oppose a corpse? See, the danger of vanilla Christianity is the danger that Jesus takes up with the church inside us. Vanilla Christianity is actually an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. You either belong to the King of Kings or you don't. Don't swallow what's distinctive about you. Don't suppress what makes you stand out. Yes, that means that people will react. And they'll react in anger. They will. What does Paul say there in chapter 3? You know quite well we are destined for these trials. So much so that when Paul was in Thessalonica, he kept telling them that this is what was going to happen. Don't be surprised. But neither hold back. Now, have a look at what Paul prays in Thessalonica. And he prays in response to hearing how they've actually been. He tells us in verse 6, Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you, as we also long to see you. Um, Timothy's brought good news. So Paul was in Thessalonica. The mob hits And they squirrel him out of Thessalonica and he goes on the road and he goes to Berea. The mob hits Berea. So he gets out of Berea and he goes down to Athens. But he leaves Silas and Timothy, who weren't being pursued in Berea, to then meet up with the believers to encourage them, to strengthen them, to find, so that Paul can find out how these guys are. And now that t- Paul has moved on from Athens across to, down to Corinth, Timothy's come and given his report, and the report is encouraging. They haven't gone for vanilla. They haven't swallowed what's distinctive. He's brought Paul praise for this church. And it's in terms of those very things that are in the midst of the news that Timothy brought. What does Timothy bring news about? Their faith and their love. Look at what Paul's prayer is in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love Increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Let's have a look at this. This idea of this solid faith, that is a faith that is united in love, And a faith that is mature and lived. Let's have a look at those. Verse 12. May the Lord 
make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. Here's his prayer that they they would love. Love each other. Love the people around them. Everyone else. That means presumably people of Thessalonica. The people of the mobs. The people caught up in the lies of the enemy. The people who are living an empty life. Remember we've journeyed through as a church the book of Ecclesiastes and the writer shows that life under the sun, life lived for its own sake, life without God in the picture is empty. It's meaningless. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other, for everyone else. Just as ours does for you. Here's the example. Paul says, what do I mean? Like we've loved you guys. Paul's not just telling them to do something. He's been showing them what it looks like. And when you, when you look at the language Paul uses here in 1 Thessalonians, it's amazing language. It's incredibly intimate language. Go back to chapter 2, verse 17. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from... It, the, the language there is quite stark, isn't it? Um, the, the word that's translated there as orphaned is, is a word that can either be what happens, as we normally use it, for a child who has lost their parents... It's also a word that they use the other way around for a parent bereft of their children. And Paul has described his relationship with the Thessalonians as like a father with his children and like like a mother with her children, caring as a parent for the children who, who he has shared the gospel with and his intense love for them. So much so that when he was torn away from them, he speaks of it like a parent who's, who's devastated at the loss of their child. torn away as he has to flee Thessalonica. He doesn't just go, oh, well, that wasn't good. Let's try the next city. No, he's torn away from them, and then having been torn away from them, what did he say? For a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. And then here in chapter 3, he tells us that he gets to the point where he can stand it no longer. That being cut off from this community he has grown in his love for, he sends Timothy. And Timothy tells him the wonderful news that just as he had shown a longing and a love for them, they had a longing and a love for him. 
this is actually how the community created by the gospel of the Lord Jesus functions. A community of love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us. It's not just like, oh, we had a great time together. It's a bit stronger than that. And that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. That matching of, of longing. The picture of the Christian community is often uses very strong family language. Brothers and sisters. Of a, of a group that are stuck together with bonds of love. Now, I'm sure that there are families probably represented here. There are people who are thinking of families where the bonds of love have been stretched a little bit. But the picture the New Testament gives of what we should be is a people who love each other. And part of a, a solid faith that grounds us in a time of persecution is actually the fact that we are made to be there for each other. Christianity is not like tennis. You know tennis? Get your racket, go on the tennis court. You just do. You do your best. And if you do best, your best better than they do their best, well, you win. Soccer. Who watched the Matildas? Yeah, a few people. You go on that field, you can't play solo game. You're one of a team and you actually have to coordinate with your team in order to win. Christianity is not a single player sport. That's why in the book of Hebrews, all through it, it keeps saying, not just see to it that you don't, but see to it that none of you does. Actually be aware of each other. When you're estranged from your church family, it should actually hurt. When you can't be there, it should take a piece out of you. I wonder sometimes whether we, we need to do more work at being invested in each other. Say, actually, these are the people, this is my family in Christ. And I can't walk away from them lightly. I can't just, I mean, it's great to go on holidays. I'm planning on doing it soon. But I won't have forgotten you. I can't. You are my family. And that care has to come with me. That concern has to come with me. Now, the, the, the faith that stands solid is a faith that is grounded in a love, united in love. Alive. But that you survive. that not only cares about what this does to me, but what it does to you. What it does to the person sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you. 
Second thing Paul prays for is that they would have a mature faith. Verse 13, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Uh, when we see strengthen your hearts, um, sometimes we, can, we, we just have to keep reminding ourselves that this is not the you know, picture of the heart that we get these days where it's all about stirred up affections. Right? He's talked about that about our love for one another. This is about the will. The heart is the seat of the will in a biblical mindset. They actually did have a bodily organ that was to do with your emotions. It wasn't your heart, it was your, it was your guts. It kind of makes sense sometimes. You sort of feel it. In your guts, well, that's where they kind of located the emotions in the end. You're feeling like as he strengthens your heart. It's talking about what you choose, about what you do, how you move from what you know to what you do. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Remember back in verse 7, he said... Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now, we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. You are choosing to stand with Jesus, even when Jesus is not popular in your world. You're choosing to stand with him as you should. And so he says, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God, our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now Paul's not saying here, um, actually, yeah, I was really encouraged by your faith, but there's a massive hole in it. No, he that was just a given. He wants to tell them more. He wants to establish them more fully, teach them, see them really well grounded. That's the thing that brings him this great pleasure before God. is knowing that they stand firm. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about this idea of being firm and mature. And he refers, he says this, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. The stuff that gets thrown against you Maturity, a, a faith that has depth and that is lived out. Is the what helps guard you from the assault of a world that hates Jesus 
May he strengthen your hearts, Paul prays, so that you will be blameless and holy. It's one of the things that the New Testament never does, though we can do it, is it never disconnects what we believe and how we act. In fact, it joins them really closely together. Who we are shapes how we respond, shapes what we do. A robust trust in the Lord Jesus shapes how we respond, how we live, how we decide, what we do in an argument, what we do when things go wrong. A good grounding leads to a robust and a robust holiness, being different, being blameless. Blameless here is not the same as sinless. Because in the end, it is only the, the outrageous grace of God that means we could ever be called sinless. But what he seeks to transform in them, blamelessness is something that in the scriptures that was just, people were described as blameless. Job was a man who was blameless and upright. He wasn't sinless, but he was someone who strove to do what was right and who acknowledged his need for forgiveness when he didn't. This weekend is the Brisbane Comic Con. Did anybody know that? Yes. You did? Did anybody dress up? No, there's a surprise. Um, <laughs> it's a time when people get dressed up as their favourite characters and go to Comic Con. It's, it's a time when we, you, you kind of get to live that pretend world. Have fun pretending to be, who's that? The Riddler, Jack Sparrow, Harley Quinn. Come on, who? Nick Fury. Trouble is... It's all fantasy, isn't it? Going to guard us in a hostile world is not the cosplay of Christianity. Any more than what's going to guard us is discarding the trappings of Christianity. It's actually a faith that is solid and real grounded in who the Lord Jesus is, what the gospel is, that then works itself out to a life lived in response to that gospel, a life lived in commitment to that Lord Jesus. Not just a play and a pretense. My prayer for you, the prayer I'd like you to pray for me, it's actually the same prayer that Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other.
for everyone else. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. That you might stand firm in this world. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have life. We thank you that by your outrageous grace, you have washed us clean. Our guilt and shame is no more. That you have given us what we could never deserve. And Lord, we acknowledge that in this world, that Belonging to the Lord Jesus will mean that the same rage directed at him as the crowds called crucified will certainly catch us up as well. Lord, we pray that you would rescue us from the desire to just be vanilla or to play at. But instead, Lord, sink us deep into who Jesus is and what he has done. Fill us with a love for one another and establish us firm. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.